I want to talk about faith, if I may, for a minute. Um, faith, biblically speaking, what do we mean when we speak of, of faith? Uh, faith, it's, it's not uh, often how it is uh, thought of, I think, in our, in our day, in our culture. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not just a... a you know, something you do, you're not clear, you're not sure, you just, okay, I'm just going to take a, a leap of faith. That is not, biblically speaking, what in fact uh, faith is. Faith, biblically speaking, is not a blind leap. It is an informed step. It is an informed step based on what you know. You're going to move forward taking a step of, not leap of, faith. I'll give you some simple examples. A few minutes ago, just a few minutes ago, I'm looking out here except for Except for AJ, sorry to call you out, but he's the only one in the room who's not seated in a chair. And so the, you, you thought to yourself before you sat your hindquarters down in that chair, I think it'll hold me based on my experience. I'm taking, it's not a leap, it was a step based on what you, you knew. This past week, no doubt, no few of us sat in the passenger car, passenger seat of a car. Was that a blind leap? I don't think so. Likely it had to do with some trust, some faith, some belief that you had in the, in the skill sets of the driver taking you where he or she needed to take you. Uh, some of, no few of us have accepted job offers. No few of us have extended or accepted marriage proposals. Those were not, I hope, blind leaps of faith. Those were steps of faith based on what you knew, not exhaustive knowledge. Of course, we're not, never going to have that, but sufficient knowledge. Not exhaustive knowledge, but sufficient knowledge. You took a step of faith. That's worth considering, worth thinking about here. Well, push it on just another level. Uh, there are obstacles to faith. So understanding that's what faith, the definition of faith is. There, there are obstacles to faith. So just for argument's sake, just for the moment, I'm just going to talk about intellectually, intellectually, obstacles to faith. When you don't have enough understanding, when you're puzzled, when you're confused about the facts presenting themselves and, and the landscape looks fuzzy and uncertain in front of you, it, it prevents you, it blocks you from being able to take that step of, that informed step of faith if you don't have the information. You've got a barrier there. Now, stay with me in context. Don't do a soundbite on me here. In context, you can make a case that there are portions of the Bible that are obstacles to faith. Whoa, what? Hold on. Taken out of context and misunderstood, there are many parts within the Bible, Old and New Testament, that can actually be an obstacle to biblical faith. Case in point, we're in the midst of a series in the book of Judges. Case in point, the topic of holy war. That for many can be an, a barrier, an obstacle to faith, to trusting in the one true living God. If that's something that he could call his people ever, whatever the circumstances, ever to do, then there's no way I'm going there. You understand how that, that, that could work as, as, as a barrier to faith. So we're in the midst of this series. In order to move forward, we're going to go backwards. Uh, Will, I think you were, Judges 3, 4, somewhere? It was, it was a, yeah, an interesting text that you guys were exploring last week, I heard. Um, and, and a great, great exposition he did on that. Uh, but in order to go into Judges 4 and 5 and 6 and 4, we're going to go backwards. We need to rewind the tape and talk about some things that we see from the start, 
holy war. What's up with that? So we're going to go to Judges 1. Read just some, a few portions out of Judges 1, starting in, verses, in verse 1, read down to verse 10, and then pick up a few other places as well. So, hear now God's word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now let me skip down to, to verse 8. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shisha and Achiman and Talmai. Skipping over to verse 16, and the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies at the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Eshkelon in its territory, and Ekron with its territory, and the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron, skipping down to verse 22. The house of Judah went also, also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Loose, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go, and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Loose. That is its name to this day. Well, can we pray? Lord, thank you for your word, and it is true. We may not understand all of it, but that doesn't make it less true. Uh, would you help us to be the one here this morning bending the knee uh, before you, the authority over all, uh, our very creator and sustainer and savior? We have sung much of your greatness already, on your power and your wisdom and might and goodness and faithfulness and mercy. And we ask now that even as our eyes turn to the pages of these uh, somewhat difficult things that you would help us hear, not me, but your spirit. So we pray for that now. Amen. Questions. Questions come at us from all different angles, right? Children, small children ask us questions. Sometimes they can be delightful, so charming, so charming. Sometimes horrifying, depending on the context and who is listening and what's been asked. Exasperating questions even, not just entertaining, but exasperating questions. <clears throat> we ask questions. We keep asking questions, all of us, especially when the, the issues, the stakes are, are big and, and beyond us. And so we find ourselves asking questions. You know, God, his nature who he is, what he's done, what he's like, uh, 
his purposes for us, his ways with us. And we, we, these small little creatures like ants on the deck of the aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific Ocean trying to understand the workings of the Milky Way. We are trying to understand these huge, huge things beyond us in the midst of a crooked generation that bends us and twists us upside down. We don't even know what ends up. And we're trying to figure out these. So we're asking questions. We ask questions. We hear questions. We hear questions, many questions. Uh, sometimes those questions, uh, because we are, many of us are people of faith, when there are questions of doubt, those questions of doubt fill us with distress and dismay because we're concerned, we're scared, we're a little freaked out, you know, by this question that this person that we care for or maybe just have met is, is asking us. And for whatever reason, it's, it's freaking us out. It's spinning up a desire maybe to ignore it, suppress it. We're afraid of it to deal with it, to face it. The fact is we should never be afraid of the questions. God's big enough for the questions. I've tried to tell my children because they grew up over the years, look, whatever the question may be, you may not know, I may not know the answer to that question, but the fact is there is an answer. You need not doubt that. Just hang in there. The Lord will show you in his time. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to freak out about it. Well, then that takes us to this topic of holy war. Um, think with me here, you know. Let's just look at it, face value. We have God commanding his people to drive out these other peoples. He's, com- he's not giving them permission to do so. He's telling them to do so. He is telling them, he is ordering them, he is enabling them, standing by them, blessing them as they carry out something that from our modern sensibilities looks kind of like ethnic cleansing. And as I said earlier, that can be a barrier for a lot of people, a lot of people to faith or for us, even if it's not really a barrier, we just kind of shunt it to the side, bury it, say, I'm not going to think about that because that's too uncomfortable, but I'll just press on with the Gospels. What if, we, what if we dealt seriously with the whole of God's Word? What if we dealt with the, the, the whole of it and, and, and wrestled with, with all of it uh, equally so? Okay, so what then do we do with this? We ask the questions. We ask the questions and take them where they lead. The Lord wants us as his people, as his children, to come to him with our questions and follow where they lead. He wants us to ask such questions. So just two simple ways, two simple points in this outline here this morning. If you've got the bulletin, you can see where we're going. The first is, okay, what are ways to answer this question as, as an experiment, as, a, as an exercise in this, in asking questions, looking at holy war? What would be some ways to answer that? And then secondly, following up from there, uh, where does that leave us? Where do we go from there? What difference might some of those answers make, say, tomorrow morning? Okay. So first, uh, what are some ways to answer the question? And, and to do that, I want to start with unhelpful ways to answer it. And then once you know, kind of deal with some of those, some more helpful ways, some more helpful ways, better ways to answer the question regarding this holy word we see in Joshua and Judges, Deuteronomy, Numbers, etc. So here's how the, sometimes the, the question is answered. It goes like this. Israel misheard what God said. 
they misheard what he said. They misunderstood what he said, hearing him through the ears the, in the context of a, of a violent ancient Near East, and, and they just got it wrong. And so they did what they did. Well, no doubt they were in a cultural context, and clearly as from Old Testament history, they misheard a lot and misapplied a lot, but then that doesn't really do you much, this answer in terms of, well, then why did God bless them in it? Another uh, point that's raised is, well, God accommodated to their weakness, to just where they were. He, he was willing to get his, out of love. He was willing to get his hands dirty. He was willing to accommodate. He was willing to compromise his moral purity so as to move them along to carry out his purposes. But, you know, we're also told elsewhere that God's nature never changes. He is holy, holy, holy. The unjust will never do, excuse me, the just one will never do unjustly. So that, that doesn't really square much either. Thirdly, well, sometimes it's said, well, this is rhetorical language. The call to holy war and the reports of that on the battles and, and, and such. You know, they weren't called to exterminate the people. They were just called to evict them. You know, the numbers that are given is just a sign of, uh, it's just a rhetorical flourishing, kind of saying, you know, we really, we really had them. We really took them down that day. We won the day. Well, that's failing to reckon with the fact that, you know, truth-telling is a thing in Jewish culture. And also, while to be sure, sometimes numbers as reported elsewhere in the scriptures and different genres of the literature is somewhat symbolic, this is historical narrative, and it doesn't really work that way to, to, to try and spin it with that in mind in, in Judges and Joshua. Uh, the one that's perhaps the most popular one to try and explain all this away is to say, you know, you just need to understand that this is a stage in Israel's history, history where it's, based, it's kind of a primitive religion. It's a primitive people, a primitive religion. And you just, we've just got to cut them some slack here as things develop and we move through the Old Testament, through the centuries, into the New Testament. And, and I would just have to say that that's a kind of arbitrary. That's kind of selective. That's kind of subjective. It's kind of convenient. You know, how do you, what basis by which do we have to say it was primitive? But to have, we would have to have an objective standard by which to say, oh, wait, murder's wrong, stealing's wrong. But wait, where does that come from? The Ten Commandments. Oh, wait, where do we find that? In the same testament, old, that we find Joshua and Judges. So wait, it's okay. Ten Commandments, at least some of them, are okay, but Judges is not. It's kind of arbitrary. It's kind of selective. It's kind of convenient. Okay, so Israel misheard, God accommodated rhetorical language, primitive, language, primitive religion. There's a better answer. But to get at the better answer, we've got to take a big step back and deal with first things, first principles, and kind of build from there. And, and the first is the first of the first, is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the most basic fundamental thing to recognize from the start that God is the sovereign creator of all things. Therein, he is the owner of all things and has a right to rule and move and do with and over all things given who he is. Now, that may rub us wrong, but that's kind of fundamental. He is the sovereign God of all. He is also the just judge of all. And there is no shadow of turning in him. All of us, all mankind, from the beginning to the end, wherever, whenever, whoever are accountable 
to him. That's basic Old Testament, New Testament. He is the sovereign creator of all. He is the just judge of all. We as men and women, mankind are accountable to him. Here's another principle, fallen, sinful, um, such that strictly being, strictly speaking, it's an oxymoron to speak of the slaughter of the innocents because there are no innocents. They're never, not since Genesis 3. And I know this is hard. I know this is hard to hear. But this is just what we find here that we need to reckon with. God is the sovereign creator. God is the just judge. We as men and women, mankind, fallen, accountable, guilty, all of us before him. And it's also worth noting at this point, specifically in the culture of the time, in the ancient Near East, the land of Canaan, the people that occupied that space, these are not the folks you wanted as your next-door neighbor. Uh, biblical writers, extra-biblical writers, archaeological evidence is very clear. The vile, despicable, horrendous, horrific ethical practices, worship practices, religion that they were devoted to, child sacrifice. Now, let those two words settle in now. This was called for. It was commonplace as part of the worship of their gods to take their infants and put them on an altar and sacrifice them alive to their pagan gods. Are, you comfort are we comfortable with this? The crass, vile sexual immorality that was interwoven into the fertility worship and religion and practices of the time this was the comp this is the people this is your next door neighbors there in canaan who we're talking about here uh, god is sovereign creator god as just judge mankind as fallen now now israel who is israel what was their purpose what was their function why who who were they supposed to be from the beginning from the very start with genesis 12 we see with abram they were called out, blessed by God's grace, to be a blessing for his glory. They, had been, they were called out as his holy people to be separate for his own purposes in this world, not just by their very lives and by their example lived out in the world to point to as a signpost, as a nation, as a people, to the reality of the living God for the peoples around them, but also to be the nation through whom would come the Christ, the Savior, through one nation was to come the savior of all the nations. This is Israel. This is her purpose. This is her function. Okay, here then comes the call to war. The land, the promised land, the land of Canaan is inter inextricably tied to Israel's purpose. She has to have a place. She has to have a home. And this is where the Lord sends them. This is the land that he gives to them such that they can fulfill that purpose. And if she compromises, if she holds back, if she pulls the punch in terms of his commands as what it means to move into that land, they surely will be dragged down into the pit of Canaanite idolatry, injustice, and evil. And that's exactly what we see. As time goes by, as that's what Israel does, and that's what happens to them. And that's what happens to them.
So this is not, please understand, in any way, ethnic cleansing. This has nothing to do with race. Absolutely nothing. The peoples themselves were, giving, were given a chance, opportunity, and many took it, to repent and turn to the Lord, to Yahweh, the Lord. Uh, it's even alluded to even in Judges 1, but you think in terms of Rahab and the Gibeonites and, and other examples. This was not ethnic cleansing, nor was it just a callous land grab, just a conquest, just as, as normal in that day, perhaps sometimes even in our own. No, it was, it was a judgment. It was a judgment of the living God exercised through one nation upon those nations, a just judgment. It was also a foretaste. It was the future breaking into the present. It was the future. It was a sign of something bigger to come. Much like Jesus' miracles, right, are a sign of the, of the presence and the future of the coming of the kingdom. Well, so too these acts of, of judgment as, as well. That's the background to holy war. Before I move on then to the second point, I just two, two quick points of application. And one would be this. Let us ask our questions, but let us not rush to judgment. Let us be willing to question our questions. Let us be willing to doubt our doubts. Uh, let us not be too hasty in the conclusions that we come to. The second point of application is very much what's tied to the first, and that is not just not being hasty and not being too quick, rushing to judgment, but may we listen with humility to the answers that actually are there in the Scriptures, though we may not like them. The, may we be humble enough to hear the answers that God has given to us. May we, you know, adopt something of the postures we read earlier from Job 38 and then into 40 as we hear the Lord's revelation of himself powerfully revealing himself and then Job's humble response to that. We need to know something and imbibe and breathe in something of all of that, 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 that dynamic as the Lord is speaking and Job is responding. He wants us to come with our questions. He wants us to follow where they lead, but we need to really come with real, honest questions. Well, that then takes us to the second point. Where do we go from here? Where does this leave us? What difference might any of this make for us come Monday morning? Um, and if I may, try and answer that by, by in two categories. Uh, one would be God's eternal nature that we see revealed in all this that can actually encourage our hearts. And, and another would be God's ongoing decree to us still now that we see here in, this, in passages like this. So first, God's eternal nature. That, that would be two things. One would be the reality of his holiness, which is pretty obvious, right? When it comes to holy war, and Judges and Joshua and the conquest of Canaan and, and those things, uh, the reality of his holiness. But it does, it, it ought to give us pause though, because at least I know from my own twisted heart and the way I tend to think is that I oftentimes come to passages like this and my response is, and I think many of us respond this way, and it goes something like this, how could he condemn these people that way? 
How could he condemn these people that way? When actually, the better question to ask is, how could he show mercy to any of us? How could he show mercy to any of us, self-included? His reality of his holiness. And the next part is the wonder of his mercy. Now, you may be thinking, what? How do you see any inkling of mercy in this? Okay, great question. Think with me. It was by God's mercy that he let them, let the Canaanites live in that land as long as he did. It was his mercy that these, the command uh, for holy war was limited only within the promised land, and it didn't expand beyond that. It was his mercy to his people, Israel, to try and protect them from the falling into the pit, the slough of idolatry. It was his mercy such that the judgment, hell due unto you and me, fell in full upon himself at the cross such that any of us could be free. This is his mercy that we see abundantly if we will have but eyes to see uh, here. His eternal decree, uh, then his ongoing, uh, his on, sorry, his eternal nature, then the, the, his ongoing decree, his ongoing decree. The, the battle still rages. Well, if you thought about that, I don't, now hold on, be, <laughs> don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. But the battle still rages. A holy war, if you, if you will, not rightly understood, it still goes on. It hasn't ceased, though the field has or expanded, or deepened, or however you want to think about it. So uh, go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I think we've got a slide for this. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, Paul speaks of this very thing. The battle rages on. It hasn't, we're, we're not done. Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle rages on. We still have an enemy. It's not, but these they are not, Paul's very, he's explicit about this. They're, it's not, our enemy are not human beings, not men and women, but against demonic forces, against Satan himself. That is our enemy. Paul couldn't be any clearer on that. Our enemy are not human beings taking up a physical space, but spiritual forces wrongly occupying this world. And our king, who has come and is coming again, has sent us forth as his people as an occupying force, taking, establishing a beachhead. We are the rebellion. We are the resistance. That's us. That's the church called to wage in this battle. And we have weapons, weapons that we are meant to wield. 
Weapons that we are meant to utilize, to take up, not swords, not clubs, not spears. Paul goes on in this very same passage. He goes further, picking up in verse 13, next slide. Uh, therefore, so, you know, based on what I just said, right? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. There is a battle, brothers and sisters, my friends, the battle's not done. It's not over. The outcome is determined, but the battle rages on. I wonder if we know there's a war on. You know, that was a phrase that was kicked around, I think, during World War II in, you know, in terms of, hey, you know, as far as you know, uh, rationing and you know, rubber not being accessible and nylon not being accessible and certain food items and things like that and petroleum and hey do you know there's a war on paper you know restrictions on that there's a war on do you know there's a war on i, I came across this piece um i'd saved it and i hadn't seen it for quite some time is it actually a piece by scott simon npr uh 2017 he's reflecting on the horror of chemical warfare and the reports, the news reports coming out of Syria at the time. Remember this? Sure you do. Um, this is what he said. The, 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 the piece, it was an audio piece, and you can see the transcript online. The piece is called A Meditation on Evil. He said, I, I have always avoided using the word evil when covering terrible events, even those in Bosnia and Kosovo that would later be labeled war crimes. I was of a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept, a word we used only when we didn't know what madness or imagined infraction might drive human beings to commit murder, even on a mass scale. I've interviewed Romeo Dallier, the former Canadian general who commanded UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda in 1993 and 1994. General Dallier discovered Hutu soldiers were getting ready to massacre Tutsi civilians. But he was prevented by UN leadership from using his troops to try to stop the murders before they could take place. More than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were then slaughtered over three months. What's the population of Clarksville now? What are we at? Somebody, this, is, this is not a rhetorical question. What are we now? Like 200,000? Is that right? Two to three? Okay, so multiply that out two and a half times, bodies everywhere. That's your scale, okay? 800,000. Romeo Dallier said what happened made him believe in evil and even a force he called the devil. I've negotiated with him, he told us. I've shaken his hand. Yes, there is no doubt in my mind. And the expression of evil to me is through the devil and the devil at work and possessing human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. One of the evenings in my office, I was looking out the window, and my senses felt that something was there with me that shifted me. I 
I am, please don't misunderstand. I am not trying to spiritualize this. I'm actually going the other way in bringing this up to say that evil Satan and the battle are real. Ephesians 6 is as real as Joshua and Judges. The battle is as real as the blood that was soaking into the soil after the, ba- you know, the battle of the, the, the 10,000 that you first read of in Judges 1. The battle that we are called to engage in in Ephesians 6 is every bit as real as the blood soaking into the soil as the bodies laying in the dirt. The question is, do we know there's a war on? Do we know that there is a war on? Okay, so let me, just wrapping this up, come all the way full circle, back, back to where we started. We started talking about obstacles to faith. Remember that? That was felt like a week ago. We started talking about obstacles to faith, okay? Faith, obstacles to faith, okay? And this whole thing, important as it is, has been kind of an ex, you know, a, a, a live experiment in trying to deal with one of these defeater beliefs, one of these barriers, obstacles to, to faith end up being holy war. So let's come back to obstacles to faith, our own. Obstacles to our own faith. How do we deal with that? We need, to ask, we need to consider how we're asking our questions. We need to ask the questions and to consider how we're asking the questions and to try as best we can to ask them honestly. And I say we need to do all that we can to ask them honestly because here's the dynamic. What we want often shapes what we believe. And you'd like to believe that all the time what I believe shapes what I want. That's not always true. We are complicated creatures, okay? Often what I want shapes what I believe. Simple example. Tim Keller has said on no few occasions, the experience recorded, reported this experience, this, this conversation that he has in his study with a college student who's been away at school for some period of time and comes back and they're, they're expressing struggles of faith and beginning to, to be skeptical about you know, what their parents grew them up with and what they heard in church, what they heard him say. And Keller will sit there across the, the room and, or across the, the chair or the desk and he's hearing, he's listening, he's carefully asking questions and finally he just slices to the issue and asks this question. So tell me, who do you want to sleep with? Now, that may seem like a non sequitur. That may seem to have nothing to do with the topic. But it often has everything to do with the topic because of this dynamic. What I want will shape what I believe. So we need to ask our questions, but ask them honestly. Ask them honestly. So that has to do with our own struggles. We also need to consider the struggles of others. How we hear their questions. We need to listen as carefully as we can, as patiently as we can, as long as we can. Because, here's another principle, to shut down the questions will kill the growth. To shut down the questions will kill the faith's growth. You think you're doing them a favor by stopping the questions. No, you're not. You're just causing it to go underground where it will destroy what little foundations there are. 
Let whoever it is ask the question, lest we leave them with this thought in mind. If God's not big enough to handle my questions, then he will never be big enough to handle my pain. If God can't handle my questions, how real can he be? We don't want to leave anybody with error. The Lord wants us to come with our questions, to come with ourselves, to come in prayer for others, whatever the questions may be, about holy war or anything else, and go where they lead. Follow those questions where they lead. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us to own our questions right now, all of us in this very room. To not ignore them, to not fear them, to not suppress them, to not belittle them. You've made us as emotional, rational creatures with a mind, a will, a heart. There are wondrous things to be discovered as we ask the questions. Your eternal nature, your ongoing decrees. There are such roots can be deepened if we will but ask the questions. Would you help us? Help us, please. Pray in your name. Amen.